All right, Fro fans, here we are on the brink of a back-to-back set against the Wizards. Not exactly a great team, so I could do post-game reactions, and hopefully I will, on the heels of dominant performances from many of our players. But I also wanted to just have a kind of a, a conversation about the state of the Cavs, because there's nothing that sends me into an emotional spiral like a loss to those fucking Canadians. So, joining me on the podcast today is a man who is also a Cavalier podcaster. His Cavalier pod is called the It's Cavalier Podcast. And he also has a large following on YouTube and Twitter. His name is Mac Perry. Mac, thank you for joining me today. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, man. As you know, we just got done chatting a little bit about the children and you know, it's an ever-expanding family, but any chance to talk Cavaliers is a good opportunity for me. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining me. Okay, so where do you where do you do it from? Is the room sufficiently <laughs> separated? It's the basement. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hey, it's look the at basement. that. We're both operating out of basements. You just with uh, you know, with more distractions. Me with nothing but my fear of <laughs> dying from radon poisoning. Okay, so this is an interesting stretch of basketball for the Cavaliers in the sense that we've been without the two starters and we were without Donovan Mitchell for a long time, and now Mitchell is back in the fold, and we get into a part of the schedule which is a little bit lighter, back-to-back games against the Wizards. I just kind of wanted to get a sense about your feelings about the current state of the team, where we're at now, where we're headed. As of right now, it's hard for me to say because, you know, public opinion would lead you to believe that the Cavaliers are underperforming, right? And if you're an outside observer, if you're just strictly looking at their record, you might walk away with that. But if you haven't taken into account the severe rash of injuries that this team has had to deal with, uh, then you know, you're know you not really going to come away with a fully observed opinion. And I, I can't take what you say seriously if you're not really taking all these different things into consideration. For this team to be where they are, Sands, Evan Mobley, Sands, Darius Garland for a pretty solid stretch now and get big-time performances out of players who were previously thought of as like non-rotation players, it's pretty awesome. Overall on the season, if I'm thinking about my outlook – I still feel really, really optimistic, as you already pointed out. We're not at full strength, and we're performing very, very well in certain regards. There are things that need to be cleaned up, right? And this is how I kind of wanted to get your opinion on this, because you just referenced Donovan Mitchell's return to the lineup. I've already started to see the Boo Birds come out in regards to people feeling like Donovan Mitchell kind of stymies the team basketball element that we see in his in his absence. How are you feeling right now in regards to the, the current makeup of this team? Do you think that he's a, a a ball stopper? Do you feel like team basketball is non-existent when he's out there? Because I even saw people chirping up about that in this last game against Toronto. Generally, my feeling when it comes to online discourses, you get the extremes. I feel like, sure, there's times where Donovan Mitchell can be a ball stopper, but in the game against the Raptors, for example, in that fourth quarter, yeah, there was a rush shot towards the end that he took a a, a little quick, but you look just a few possessions earlier, we're also killing Isaac Okoro for missing a couple three-pointers late when all anybody has ever said for the past few seasons is, okay, when this guy is open, he's got to take more shots. He's got to be more confident. He's got to assert himself more. And he gets two looks in the fourth quarter from his most proficient area of the floor in the right corner, which they weren't falling for him. 
He was 0 for 4, obviously. But uh, over the course of the season, he's nearly a 40% shooter from that side of the floor. You would want him to take those. And in that situation, sometimes I think the difference between whether we feel like he's a ball stopper or not sometimes is simply based on how the guys finish their shots uh, who get the passes from him. I don't think it's entirely fair to him. Now, I'm not going to say that I didn't feel great about the stretch where we had none of our stars because the way that the offense played and the ball movement and the extra passes, it was all fantastic. But also to go along with that, a lot of those shots were falling. And and now we get into this stretch where, you know, you've got Max Struess who his shooting percentages have regressed month to month and his volume's gone up. And so, of course, it's going to feel more noticeable. George Yang starts the season terrible. Seems like he's rebounding. He's back to missing a bunch of three-pointers. Is it Donovan's fault or is it the fault of Max Struess has to do a hell of a lot more because he's moved up the pecking order and he's having to work a lot harder and more tired legs, more missed shots. It's just, it's just hard to put an exact reason, but we can't lay it all at Donovan's doorstep if we also are going to kill all the guys who are missing the looks that are being generated. That's the thing to me. Like I try, and that's why I'm so optimistic about this team because we haven't seen what they can actually be at full strength. We've just gotten to see bits and pieces. We've got to see guys have stellar performances who you wouldn't necessarily have counted on in the past. I I don't know how anybody can draw a definitive conclusion right now. Even myself, I can't say how far this team is going to advance. I can't say what seeds they're going to finish in. I don't know any of these things. We don't have all of the variables that we need to kind of make a definitive uh, conclusion on that. And so I'm just taking it one game at a time. I, I'm loving the development out of certain players. Uh, you know, case in point, Jared Allen, you know, you're the, you are the fear of the fro podcast, right? <laughs> you know, you got the, you got the fro there and Jared Allen and he's been phenomenal. It's not necessarily like a, a reinvention of his game. It's not anything that he's necessarily doing any differently. In my opinion, it's just the fact that the Cavs are actually getting him fairly involved. I still think that they're trying to figure out how to involve certain guys. As you already pointed out, Max Struess, he's had to take on uh, a bread of the responsibility in the absence of Evan, in the absence of Darius. He's had to do things that he wouldn't normally do, i.e. playmaking. We started to see Max Struess develop sort of a chemistry with Evan Mobley, and he's done it with uh, with Jared Down too, uh, you know, in reference to some of the DHO stuff that we've seen. Some of the same things that he was bringing to the table in Miami, working with the likes of Bam Adebayo, we've started to see that carry over. At the end of the day, he still provides a ton of value, and that's just one example of some of the some of the positives from the season. Another, Sam Merrill. Had these guys not gone down, we probably would not be sitting here looking at Sam Merrill dropping 34 triples on 44 or some percent from three-point distance. Craig Porter Jr., there's just a ton of positive development, and there's a lot of reasons to be positive, to be optimistic, but I also understand like sort of the frustration behind where this team is at. Unfortunately, shit is just going to happen, and you just kind of have to roll with the punches, and I feel like J.B., for what it's worth, you, you see me defending the guy all day long on social media. Um, you know, he's taken a lot of criticism over the years. But one thing that I can say is that he has adjusted fairly well uh, to to being without his full complement of rotation players. And so there are a ton of reasons to be optimistic about this team. Well, but, it's, it's funny even in that regard, because when he succeeds with less then the pivot kind of becomes, well, how come he can't do it with a full contingent? It's sort of a, you can't, you can't win even when you win uh, type of scenario. One of the things I like about this stretch 
is that while sure, I would prefer to have everybody healthy, it certainly is encouraging to think, okay, maybe this stretch will allow us to give Merrill the minutes and the confidence he needs to be able to come in and play like he's playing in this stretch as far as I'm not talking about even the fact he's knocking down the shots. But the way that he's playing now looks like a guy who is completely acclimated into accepting, well, this is what I'm here and this is what I have the leash to do on an NBA level. And I I think that's definitely important in the sense of their minutes may fade as they go Mm -hmm. on, but to get this period where they can play this extended run, they're the rotation players of the future, especially in this environment where we don't have a lot of draft assets. So these are valuable opportunities for not just this year's team, but for any future iteration if pivots are made. So in that line of thought, I have two things for you, two questions, really. One, do you lend any credence to the idea that JB excels at coaching far less talented players rather than, you know, some of your superstars or star level talents out there when you're talking about a Donovan Mitchell, when you're talking about Darius Garland, et cetera? Do you feel like he do you lend any credence to the idea of that? Because I, I feel like I've seen a, a good amount of people suggest that JB does better when coaching less talented well, players. Well, OK. Here's what I would say to that. I don't think it's completely baseless, but I don't think it's a JB issue. I think what you see is superstar players audible all the time, or they default back to what they're most comfortable with. And it definitely happened with LeBron when we had him. You could put whoever you want as a coach. And it, like take Mike Brown. Uh, in, in LeBron's scenario, it's LeBron four out. And everybody just thought Mike Brown is this defensive coach. And then look what happened in Sacramento last year. I think to some degree, you can kill JB or you can say, is JB the only factor? Or is it harder in a star-driven league with a lineup full of talent to get guys to change and step away from their their strong suits in their individual games to play the way that perhaps he can lean on a guy like Craig Porter Jr. and Sam Merrill to play and the ball movement and for guys who are fighting just to stay in the league and to carve out rotation minutes. So I'm not going to say that when we have our full contingent, maybe this isn't the same look of the offense. Uh, But to pin that entirely on JB or for me to say that I believe that with a different coach all of a sudden Donovan Mitchell is going to necessarily play different. I don't entirely believe that. Um, But I think in all of professional sports, there's this idea, and it's, I mean, there is truth to it, that the easiest component to change when you're unhappy is the head coach. I'm not saying I think JB's perfect. There's plenty of things that I wonder, without any definitive answer, uh, (laughs) if would be better with another guy. First, I mean, just take that Toronto game. Sometimes, and this is me playing, uh, you know, body language sideline <laughs> coach, but I do often think, holy shit, can we get, can we get more whistles or win some of these challenges or these 50, 50 calls never seem to go our way. And a lot of that's probably just the Homer in me. I'm sure there's people on the other side watching it thinking we're not getting any calls, but to watch the just arms and elbows everywhere last night from, from the Raptors and see them parade to the free throw line. Those are situations where. I can't help but wonder, do the officials hate this man? Or am I just a complete homer? I'm all in my own head where I think sometimes <laughs> the way that he's working the refs is just ineffective. As it speaks to the your question, though, no, I, I don't put all that on JB. In fact, I think people kind of give our guys more of a pass sometimes there. Not necessarily Donovan. He takes plenty of bullets. But uh, Darius Garland, I definitely think it's somewhat of a pass because he's been here so long and everybody loved his breakout season. And 
those are the questions which I think this season will illustrate is, okay, can we make this offense work? JB will probably be the one to fall on the sword if it doesn't, but I don't think that guarantees that whoever the next guy in would necessarily have an easier time balancing all the talent that we have in that lineup. I, I think it's a credit to some of the guys that we have, like Jared Allen, for example. We've seen what he can do when he's somewhat unleashed. The fact that he's been able to slide in and just do what's needed when the full contingent is out there, he's one of the few that can slide into a diminished role where we don't utilize all of his skills, but he can still be incredibly impactful and fairly consistent. Will we reach a point where we decide that, you know what, we're not, we have great resources, but we can't necessarily maximize everything they can do when they're all together. And that may be a hard discussion that comes in the future, but it's certainly not one I think gets made until at least after this playoff run at a minimum. A well thought out and nuanced response. And I love that because it's, it, I feel like you can't lean any one way in regards to that. There's accountability on both sides in regards to it. And then the second part to the question I was going to ask is, you know, we're talking about minutes here. We're talking about role players, Sam Merrill and Craig Porter Jr. These are two guys who have just burst onto the scene lately and could possibly be faced with being not necessarily benched, but having their minutes fluctuate once we do return to full strength. Uh, is there a right way to go about the rotation, a solution to the possible problem of having too many cooks, uh, especially is, in regards to the guards? I think this is a – I oftentimes think that my feelings about the rotations end up being reflectant of what happened in hindsight. You know, I, I look at the end and I say, like, if you would have told me Craig Porter Jr. was going to rip off 14 points in the fourth quarter, do I believe that JB knew that? No. I just think Craig Porter Jr. came in. He found a rhythm. To JB's credit, he stayed with him in the fourth quarter, and we almost pulled that off against the Bucks. But we did. I think Merrill is one of those guys that that's going to be tricky because he needs to catch a rhythm. If he doesn't get a decent amount of consecutive minutes in these little stretches. If it's, you know, we bring him in for three minutes at the end of the first quarter and then we sit him down, it's going to be tough for him to make the kind of impact that we've seen him make in a few of these games here uh, during this stretch. But that's one of those things where I just think, okay, I hope over the course of this next month, um, my frustrations would be just give him give him big run. You, you have the luxury. The expectations are minimal. Fortunately, we have a soft schedule in the beginning part of this. I want to see Merrill get a, a full shot to do it because I do think when Garland's back in the mix, um, despite maybe a higher ceiling and lower floor from a guy like Merrill than what we've seen from Craig Porter Jr., just the role that he fills seems more sustainable when we're fully healthy to me than a Craig Porter Jr., who it's just a numbers game and you've got two max players in the backcourt. It's going to be tough for him to log a lot of minutes, despite how I feel about him as a player. But Sam Merrill could really provide something for us, especially in a season where we've seen a lot of the guys that we brought in to be shooters not have the best shooting performances. To have a guy like him who is is putting up super high volume in the limited minutes he's getting and shooting at such a high clip, I think you need to play that out and see what you have when you have the opportunity to do it. And if by the time we reach full health and Mobley and Garland are back. If he's still doing what he was doing over this stretch here, I think it's going to be hard to not find a way to in include him. Now it's a little bit harder to do because without <laughs> Mobley, our defense is softer and there are moments where we're just getting bludgeoned where clearly JB felt that in the fourth quarter of that Raptors game. But 
I've never felt like I'm a good guy at balancing rotations because <laughs> too often I feel like what ends up happening is depending on the outcome of the game and who was in when we succeeded or failed, we, we make our assessment of what it was based on the results. But it's just like that game where Karis LeVert came in and had a 15-point fourth quarter where they went away from Craig Porter Jr. I didn't think that was the right call in the moment for JB, but it worked out. So I, like, I want to see all those guys get minutes, but I also don't think it's realistic when we're fully healthy to expect that Sam Merrill and Craig Porter Jr. are going to be getting enough minutes to satisfy the people who seemingly always just want to see the bench players play <laughs> 20 to 25 minutes. I just, I, I don't understand it. And, you know, I think we all want the same thing here, right? We want all these guys to be successful. We want them all to get run. You know, when you're talking about Mero, when you're talking about Porter Jr., uh, even guys like Dean Wade and Tristan Thompson at times when they're playing well. Um, but the reality is, is that there are a lot of mouths to feed. A lot of guys are playing well in certain aspects, and it's all going to be completely dependent upon game scenario, what you need during that point in time. And that becomes perhaps uh, exasperated once we do return uh, return to full strength, especially in that guard rotation. Uh, somebody is going to be the odd man out. And more often than not, I hate to say it, but it, it might be Craig on, on certain nights, especially considering the, the sharp shooting that Merrill can bring to the table. 44.7% from three-point distance, 34-minute triples, really high volume. Uh, in limited action, and I feel like that can carry. Uh, we saw him do it at the G League level. We've seen him do it. Uh, now, it, yeah, I think we saw him do it in, in Summer League, and now we've seen him do it with the Cavs. There are, this is sustainable, in my opinion. I think that's the word you use. It is definitely something that is sustainable uh, if called upon from him. But, I, you know, these are just all things that point to my positivity. And I, I know people hate that at times, but, uh, you know, I so much negativity in regards to this team at times. Why add to it? No, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm just a coward. So when people say something that I vehemently disagree with, I then ask myself, okay, how much time do I have to commit to a back and forth? <laughs> or, or do I just like it and keep it moving? You know, like I think one of the things that's arisen in this little Craig Porter Jr. stretch here is – Shrapnel heads Karis LeVert's way. And I don't even think it's because of how Karis LeVert is playing so much as that he's seen as an obstacle keeping Craig Porter Jr. off the court. From, from a team construction standpoint, though, just on the aspect of you know positivity, if there was one thing that's happened this season that you, you didn't anticipate, the storyline that you feel the best about since the beginning of this Cavalier season, what would it be for you? Probably Isaac Okoro, uh, honestly. Um, I, I've been a big believer in him, you know, his entire tenure here. But I didn't necessarily – I expected him to look better with more spacing around him, uh, having having the likes of Max Struess out there, having George Niang, although Niang has kind of been a bit of a disappointment in certain uh, certain regards. But High ceiling, Isaac low Okoro. floor guy, another one of those guys. <laughs> Sometimes I love him. Had that stretch in yeah. the fourth quarter where it's single-handedly felt like he helped lead that run back. But then if you looked at the first half – of that Raptors game, it was a, you know, mixed bag of results. Yeah. Uh, but for me, yeah, I did not anticipate him looking as well as he has in the starting unit. I didn't anticipate him starting, but here we are. <laughs> it's just uh, one of those positive things. Uh, and I couldn't be happier from him. It was definitely unexpected. Uh, how about you? It would probably be Craig Porter Jr. being as ready as he is because mm -hmm. I, I'm not of the belief that I, I, I haven't decided one way or another you know, what the future of this team will hold. Certainly, I don't make that decision. So who knows where we'll be in the summer? There's a part to me, though, 
that loves what's happening now because between Craig and Sam and even seeing Jarrett uh, in this construction where he's playing the one big situation, which, you know, maybe we never break up the bigs in the future, but just the idea that both these guys can prove to be viable with spacing around them for stretches of the game. If we ended up changing our construction, if we ended up staggering these guys for the remainder of Jarrett's contract a little bit more, if there was more minutes where they're playing apart than they currently are, all those things I think are positive developments because if we have to make some shakeup, it's a luxury to be in a situation where we're sitting there hoping for guys underneath to kind of rise up and assume roles uh, in this situation. So I think Craig Porter Jr. is kind of, you know, the pedestal guy of that theme this season. But Sam Merrill certainly falls into it, too, where it's it's found money. Nobody would have said when we came into this season with Rubio in the situation he was in and signing Ty Jerome, I, I had high expectations for Jerome. I expected that he would outpace Rubio. But here we are, three months later, I don't think it's practical to think that when Jerome comes back, he can leapfrog Craig Porter Jr., which is a testament to how good this undrafted guy has been. Uh, and those things are super encouraging to me. A close second, and maybe recency bias, would be how great Jared Allen has been during this stretch. <laughs> but that's because oh, coming figure. into the year, my my biggest frustration was... The discourse that took place between the Knicks exit and the start of the season was almost entirely, you know, get rid of this soft bum type of conversation, which... In, in reference to that, I don't think I've actually seen your opinion too often on that, if at all. So I just want to ask you uh, how you actually felt seeing all that discourse take place, being that you are such a big fan. <laughs> this is a perfect example now, right? Jared Allen is playing perhaps the best basketball of his career. And despite being as good as he is during this stretch, without Mobley here, our defense has regressed a bit. I think the thing that happens is when you see a hole in a lineup that you want to plug, and in our case, and this has been the case even since Okoro was drafted, we want this big, rangy wing who can defend and shoot, and everybody wants that hole filled so desperately that they're willing to make our front court paper thin to do it. Uh, and I'm not saying, I've never been of the contention that Mobley can't succeed without Allen in doses. And sometimes, in the early part of this season, those spacing lineups with Evan Mobley, at least analytically, have been excellent. But the idea that we shouldn't have a counter or a big when you look around the league at the teams like Philly and Denver and, and the likely teams we would have to go through to get to a championship, if that's where we want to get to, Thinking that we can roll into those matchups with just Mobley always seemed far too optimistic, in my view. So whether Allen is here long term or not, coming into this season and just wanting to move him for some spacing shooter. And what are we going to put everything on? Thirty-two-year-old Tristan Thompson <laughs> and Dean Wade, who has sounds like a good idea. You know, no, like kidding. that's the part I don't support. So maybe at some point in the future, we reach a point where we say, okay, do we want to keep him in this luxury role that we have him in, or do we want to move him? But in any scenario, I think people are are being negligent if they get rid of a big without some sort of backup plan to give Evan more support there. Because not just from minutes and physical bigs that he'd have to match up, but a foul trouble safety net. You you can't be putting Mobley out there asking him to do everything. I mean, we're regularly sending teams to the line 30, 40 times the other night against the Raptors. I don't want to put so much on, on him. And we can't have Yang guarding legitimate bigs all the time. It's just not a viable 
way to operate. So I named the pod, you know, in his honor, but it's more because I tend to be like a big appreciator of quality big men. And I think we do have a luxury of having both. But I also think what tends to happen is people look at the way which Jared Allen scores in, even national analysts sometimes. I'll hear, you know, you saw all the trade iterations come up about, oh, we should trade with the Pelicans and get Valanchunas because he hits a couple threes. I think people oftentimes discount that because Jared Allen doesn't just pull with, you know, zero discretion from mid-range all the time, that he hasn't stretched the floor some. He's been a serviceable mid-range shooter this season on a very limited sample. But more importantly than that is he's facilitated an offense from the high post. He's His passing has improved. Uh, and that spaces the floor and, and gives lanes to drive to the rim in a different way that I don't think people appreciate without looking at a box score and seeing some threes go in sometimes. And that's sort of an annoyance uh, of mine, I guess, with some of the <laughs> national discourse uh, as it comes to Allen. Yeah, um, when I'm when I'm just thinking about Allen being one of the first guys included in basically every big time trade that would net a wing, it just I don't know. Honestly, it just pisses me off because I feel like we've gotten to this point now where what he brings to the table, people feel is just not valuable when that's just not the case. And I am loving this recent stretch from him because he's proving to people that he has all of these elements within his game. Um, you know, playing. With more space now than ever, you know, I uh, pointed this out the other day, but, you know, and this is no slight against Evan Mobley whatsoever, but Dean Wade, just as he's been in the starting lineup these past 11 or 12 games, already in this stretch has hit more triples in this single 11 to 12 game stretch than Mobley did all of last season and all of his first season. And so you can clearly see what the added spacing around him can do. Uh, you pointed out the mid-range from Jared Allen, something he doesn't necessarily get into enough, but the jumpers are there, man. They're legit. We saw some bank shots the other day. Loved it. I just wish he I just wish he would pull more often, but just knowing that he has that in his bag, it, it, it's wonderful. Even if he never develops a three-point shot, that alone within itself, that that's another positive development. There was one specific possession in that Toronto game that I loved, which was he was holding the ball, clearly looking for a passing lane to someone. The shot clock was starting to run down, and it wasn't materializing. Pirtle had stepped off of him. He was just hovering in the middle of the lane, and Jared put it on the floor, drove right into him, and spun into a left-handed hook. And it, and it wasn't just, yeah, he's made shots like that, but it, it was the confidence which with he did it that made me think, you know, I would love to see that just a little bit more. I mean, we, we sit here and we've encouraged Mobley to do more ball handling, you know, bring the ball up the floor and all those things. But sometimes uh, if people are going to give Allen that much space, I, I don't mind seeing it because I definitely think this this stretch should make him feel like he has a little bit of a leash to to expand his game and show what he can do. When Darius and Evan come back, do you honestly think that changes? Do you think that he kind of just takes another, it takes a step back? Because he do. often feels like he's like the fifth guy out there. I do. I just think that's his his mentality. I think he's the guy who will do whatever you ask for him. And in a team with a lot of mouths to feed, I think it's just natural that Mobley tends to get the ball in his hands more. I do think it's good that he's showcasing this, though, even if he does revert back into a smaller role. Other people are getting to witness it. They're, like I saw a discussion the other day from a, a, a Nets podcast about comparing the numbers of Nick Claxton and Jared Allen. And it was because the Nets are coming up on having to make a decision contractually about what to pay Claxton. And offensively, he just hasn't proven to be much more than a dunker. And the contention was essentially, well, 
we didn't necessarily make the wrong choice in letting go of Allen because, look, their numbers are basically the same. But if anything, this stretch should illustrate that Jared isn't a 14-10 and 10 guy because he doesn't have more in him. Jared's a 14-10 and 10 guy because he's got Evan Mobley alongside of him and two high-usage guards playing alongside of him, and he willingly sacrifices his own offensive game to do all the other things that we ask of him. So I think this stretch alone, even if he does revert, it's a positive thing for the Cavs because it's showcasing this is what he's got within him, not just for our our own benefit if an injury happens in the future, but also for any conversation involving trade. I I just hope that the people who are trying to move Jared Allen – for Lou Dortz, your Draymond Greens, who you know are on indefinite oh suspensions God. at the moment. I hope these people are are watching these games and taking away that you know what? Maybe we don't have a good barometer of what this guy, who's still in his mid twenties, on a reasonable contract, actually brings to the table. It's valuable, man. I mean, you've seen some of the deals that have been handed out even this past offseason. Jarrett's deal continues to me to look like. A bargain. He's already given you one all-star season, although it was replacement. Still all-star. Really, really good return on investment. Uh, maybe the Knicks series definitely soured a lot of people. If they have a good postseason uh, showing this year, I think public perception of him is going to be complete 180. Well, um, give me the Knicks again, because Mitchell's gone, and then Jared Allen can hopefully dominate them, and we can you know, slay that dragon. Speaking of the Knicks, though, I know you put out some. Uh, I know you put out a reaction pod in regards to it, but uh, just just want to hear your thoughts once more. Does the trade for OG? Does that what does that mean to you? I think it's good for the Knicks, just in the sense that I didn't love the idea. I didn't love what they were paying RJ, and I think OG is just a more consistent, more well-rounded player. And if you weren't going to play quickly, I mean, the quickly thing kind of felt like Jalen Brunson all over again, except instead of Dallas, it's now the Knicks letting a guy walk away because they don't want to pay him the money it would take to retain him in a role where he has to play secondary to their main star. In Dallas, it was Luka. In New York, it was Jalen Brunson who happened to be that 1A guy who was going to thwart some of the effectiveness of quickly anyway. So before the trade happened, I thought that they could maybe recoup a little bit more for quickly in terms of maybe try to divide those assets. But I think what ended up happening is they came to the realization that we're going to have to use quickly to get off this RJ deal. Let's try to get an upgrade to OG from RJ and we'll pay the price of, okay, Toronto, you have the right to pay quickly in order to do this. I, I think it's good though for them in the sense that one of the things I never loved in all the discussions about the Knicks making some mega star trade down the line was whoever was on the end of that, whether it was the Cavs or whoever, it would involve taking back an RJ or a Randall <laughs> who are, I, I don't think you would call them contractual positive assets. Uh, and we, and we're yet to see what quickly ends up being. I'd be hopeful as the Raptors, because he's a restricted free agent that they can get him on a reasonable contract for what he's providing. But I do think OG is that archetype that holds value for almost any team in the NBA. Probably all 30 teams. Who doesn't want a rangy wing who can defend and knock down threes? I don't think the same could be said for RJ and Quickly. So whether they add another piece some other way with their draft picks, which they got to hold on to, or whether they later move OG in a separate deal, I still think the return and the suitors are going to be better with OG uh, as that potential focus 
of the trade along with picks or whatever than it would have ever been with an R.J. Barrett or a Quickly. In terms of their actual on-court product, I'd be more afraid of them. OG, when when we would face him, I mean, he would he would dog Mitchell the whole game. He'd be chasing him around, making him work. And it's not that we never won those games, but it felt like those games where you had to grind Mitchell into the ground. I don't like the idea of that if we had to see that in a series again. It was already a rock fight. I think it's a good move for the Knicks against a lot of constructions, including our own. Um, and you can clear a little bit of that bad cap because they got Brunson on a value deal. Now it's basically they're down to, well, we got to wait out Fournier and we've got to figure out what, if anything, we do with Julius Randle. But I didn't love a situation where, especially if you want to just look at it from a Cavs prism, let's say we get down the line and all of a sudden Donovan drops a one-team wish list on us when he hits Mm -hmm. unrestricted free agency, and you do have to deal with them. I don't want a situation where we had to take back RJ and Julius Randle to try to even a deal. God, no. I, I would still feel like it's a net loss if we ended up having to deal with them, but I would it'd be much more palatable to deal with a team that's probably going to then have to move OG. Do you think that trade had more to do with, you know, attaining a flexible salary in regards to OG in, in I guess, search of possibly trying to sign Donovan Mitchell or another big-name free agent outright in the 2025-26 offseason? I don't think there's any world. In which, like, this is one thing I, I, if there's one thing that Cavs fans could key in on in this podcast, it would be this mini rant, which is the, <laughs> I, the idea, the idea that somebody is truly going to walk into cap space is almost a relic of the past now. Because nine times out of 10, just look at the teams with cap space in this upcoming summer. You have Detroit, you have the Jazz, will have a significant amount of money. You have the Magic, and you have the Sixers. Who And the Sixers only have that money if essentially they let Harrison and, and some other pe- pieces walk that happen to be hitting unrestricted free agency. Those teams are not the type of teams that a guy who is professed to, you know, wanting to win and wanting to be in a good situation is going to say, okay, I'm going to walk away from this Cavaliers roster who will pay me $60 million a year to play alongside Garland and Mobley to go be the headliner in Detroit. It's never going to happen. The The only way that these things happen is when they get there, if if a team backs down because they believe their bluff that I will walk away into some team's empty cap space. I don't believe the good teams <laughs> rarely ever have empty cap space. It almost always becomes who's going to blink first and if you're going to do those deals, you do them as some sort of safe face way. Now, that worries me from the Cavaliers because we have a history of just being kind of conciliatory to our stars and like the Kevin Love buyout and the Drummond thing and even Tristan Thompson. All those are things where we took the high road and we maybe did something that worked against our own, you know, team interest to be good partners to people who were you know, Cavalier members. And there's a, you Hey, know, we paid it forward when we got Max Struess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it worked out. That's true. That's true. And maybe there'll be that butterfly effect in the future. But this idea that the Knicks are going to have the discipline and the ability to take enough money off the cap that they can somehow let a maxed Donovan Mitchell walk in who could be coming in in a, a situation where he's coming off an all NBA season. I don't believe it for a second. And I don't believe it for Embiid or any of those other people. Any of those scenarios where they can get a true superstar of that ilk who's going to command that kind of money is going to involve the cooperation of the team that they're currently on now. And and, and people talk about it all the time. Like, oh, well, just sign them with cap space. Don't give up any assets. Good fucking luck. It's never going to happen. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, that's exactly where I'm at right now. Like, I, I think a lot of people were, especially, you know, if you're a Knicks fan, you're thinking, hey, you know, this this happened, th- this has to be with somebody else in mind. It's not just OG. It's possibly targeting a DeJounte Murray or, you know, a, a Donovan Mitchell, somebody of that level of talent. But no, I just think that they're comfortable in their skin right now and getting OG and they they, they like the flexibility that his contract offers. And they like the fact that this guy is one of the better two-way players in, in the NBA. And from a stylistic standpoint, as you stated, I, it's not definitely not somebody that I want to see, you know, from a one-on-one perspective in regards to how he defends uh, our guards and our wings here. Uh, I don't love it, but strictly speaking as a Cavaliers fan, I think that that deal kind of heightened his chances of re-signing in Cleveland. Uh, not, not not definitively, and I know that the two are not mutually excuse, exclusive, but I do feel like it definitely raised the chances that he's going to be here long term up a few degrees. Well, I would, since we're coming up on this Wizards matchup and we're talking, you know, hypothetical trades, there's another guy I saw you dragged into a conversation about today, uh, and that was Kyle Kuzma. Now, oh, Kuzma, Kuzma and, and Jordan Poole are in an interesting situation in the sense that I've never been a particularly big fan of Kuzma's personality. He has some value as a player. He's he's definitely not the guy that you I don't want. like Cleveland. <laughs> well, yeah, there there's that. There's the fact that he's been terrible when it comes to the matchups with us, and he's had some monster games, and then we've had a couple in recent seasons where we stymied him or he had an off night, whatever you want to call it. So there's no love lost there. I mean, he checks all the boxes for people that I irrationally hate. Was a one-time Laker. Was just a shithead to Spencer Dinwiddie. I'm Team Dinwiddie in that whole situation. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know if you saw this comment. It was recently when he was talking about the, the Detroit Pistons. And he, you know, because he's very active on social media. He tweeted something with a, a screen image of the score between the Celtics and the Pistons at that time. And at that time, the Pistons were up by 15, 20 points. And he captioned it, you know, at this point, it's like, don't be that team, alluding to, you know, don't be the team to lose to the Pistons. Meanwhile, the Wizards are fucking terrible. They're one of the worst teams in the league. For him to be talking now in the middle of this stretch, you know, he's the leader on the team alongside Jordan Poole, and they're god-awful. They've strung together losing streaks of Six games, four games, nine games. The teams that they're beating are all terrible. You know, the the Portland Trailblazers, I know if they beat us, but let's just look over that. The Pistons. So so he's a guy who, just due to the nature of the Wizards, has come up in trade conversations. I'm curious. I want to play a game with you. It doesn't even involve the Cavs. Let's take the Cavs off the table. I did see you responding to someone about uh, that on on Twitter. Uh, But I'm going to give you... A few scenarios. Now, Kuzma has a very interesting contract because while there was a lot of talk about him going to the Kings this summer uh, in free mm-hmm. agency, what ended up happening was he re-signed for four years, $90 million. But he did the Osman, Kevin Love kind of reverse slope contract where it gets smaller as it goes along. And even though he's making $25 million this season, by the end of the contract, his final year, he'll be making $19 million uh, three, four years down the line. So it's financially, it's a good contract. Say what you will about him. Maybe he's not the best defensive player in the world, but he can create a shot. He can hit a jumper serviceably. Probably not the guy you want is option one or maybe even option two on a contending team. I'm going to give you a few teams here. 
there was a story today saying, oh, they, they want they want two or three first-round picks. I don't think that's realistic. I'm not going to give you those possibilities. But let's circle back to Sacramento. How would you feel about a deal that was Harrison Barnes, one first-round pick, and maybe uh, uh, Mitchell to kind of balance the money part of it? Something that's... Davian Mitchell. Yeah. Davian Mitchell. Yeah, because Murray uh, Murray's definitely stepped forward. Maybe that eliminates the need, but I'd be curious how you would feel. Is there still a scenario in your mind where Sacramento might be interested in bringing in a Kuzma? I think there's a certain level of interest there still. I think they feel like they kind of know what they have in Harrison Barnes, right? And Davion Mitchell is a terrific guard defender, but he has his limitations. But I do feel like they should be at least a little bit interested. I feel I feel like for what they do there offensively, I feel like he would help. Um, and I don't think that's a terrible deal. I think it'd be just interesting from an age and you know kind of long term planning standpoint. I don't know that. I don't think that's the most realistic of the possibilities I'm going to give you. I do think Murray's ascension maybe has made it seem less interesting for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have a couple of scenarios which I would call the ones that have kind of a link to his past. So he sure. grew, he grew up in Flint. The Pistons are devoid of a lot of shooting talent and just kind of offensive talent oh. in general. What about us? Now, this scenario, I think, sounds a little more appealing to me. Mm-hmm. They send a Boyan, who's coming off the books this year, along with a, a first-round pick, which there's the rub. It would have to have a bunch of protections on it because the Pistons are god-awful. You can't give up a, a lotto pick for a guy like that. But even a heavily protected first-round pick, that converts into second-round picks, if those second-round picks are the Pistons' second-round picks, they're sort of like late first-round picks in a sense yeah, they're, anyway. They're, they're, so yeah, so maybe a scenario where you use Boyan and some sort of you know protection conveys down the line if it doesn't become a first-round pick scenario would be something that would bring Kuzma back to Michigan. He'd get to be on that team, and they would have a younger, kind of more long-term fit than a Boyan who's long in the tooth but certainly doesn't seem to be making sense on a, on a rebuilding team. Who's still, but who's still a very productive player? Honestly, I like that a hell of a lot more. Just because one, they need to get Cade some help. <laughs> They're three and thirty. Oh my god, I could not imagine. You know, and I know he made the comments about Cleveland and not want to be drafted by there. So fucking uh, send him to them. Detroit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, send him to the Gulag. But uh, yeah, I mean, the get Cade some help, and I feel like it does make a lot of sense. You know, there's the there's the hometown aspect, or at least the home state aspect of, it, and I feel like. They need offensive firepower there. They need somebody capable of going in there, create his own shot. The timeline in regards to the age, Boyan, yeah, makes a lot of sense. A hell of a lot more than Sacramento would. So okay. I feel like that's definitely something that should be on the table, but we'll see. Okay, now here's another one. Uh, this also, he has ties to the state of Utah from his college time. The Jazz supposedly aren't aren't very pleased with their acquisition of John Collins. I don't think they like his effort all that much. 13-7 and seven on a team that has a fair amount of cap space this summer. Who would say no in this construction? John Collins and a first-round pick, and it's probably not going to be one of Utah's first-round picks, but maybe they can repackage one of the ones that we sent them uh, for the future for a Kuzma or, or alternatively, some expiring deals. Kelly Olynyk, Taylor Horton Tucker, those two combined together along with a first rounder. Washington, what they get out of it is, you know, you get your first round pick. It might not convey immediately. It might be one of ours. So you're kind of betting on a implosion of our team to some extent. Um, but in that scenario, they just have to eat 
either two expiring deals or what I think is the less appealing option, which is the fairly hefty contract of a John Collins. Personally, I feel like Washington says no, just because I think they like what they have in Daniel Gafford. Um, I'm pretty big fan of that guy. You know, in these three trade scenarios, I'm definitely going with door number two. But uh, yeah, I feel like Washington would probably decline that one. Okay. I'll give you uh, one more, which is the Indiana Pacers. Buddy Heald, essentially, who's about to hit unrestricted free agency and who is right now just sort of in the way of some younger talent who's locked in. you mm-hmm. got Neesmith, you've got Matherin, uh, you've got those guys who are all going to be there long term. Maybe you yeah. ship off a first because they have two first round picks next year. Currently, if they were to ship off the worst of those two first round picks in Heald, that would be around number 20 or 23, I believe, in the draft. They'd bring back in Kuzma. Uh, would that be of any interest if you're the Wizards? I think, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, getting a shooter like Buddy in return. I mean, you would have to either give him a new contract this summer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't have to take back bad money in that situation. Yeah, I mean, that that is always the inherent risk when you're talking about, you know, hit a player that is due to hit unrestricted free agency. I mean, we it'd be... Basically the same thing if a team was inquiring about Isaac Okora right now, I suppose. I feel that in this scenario, Buddy Heald, I feel like he gives them enough value as a shooter to warrant a serious look. And I feel like they obviously they're gonna have cap, right? They they have the ability to resign him. So I'm I'm sure Buddy would be interested in doing that. But I guess it all comes down to whether or not Buddy would feel like he could actually win there. Why not? Still, door number two here okay. is the one yeah, that I, I keep circling back I to. I kind of share your feeling. I tried to bear it in the middle, so it wasn't just plainly obvious, but I kind of feel that way too. I mean, hell, even if you didn't want to move Boyan, even if even if the Pistons wanted to say, okay, we want to hold on, Boyan, but we'll give you an expiring Joe Harris, and instead we'll up the pick you know, capacity that we're sending you. Maybe that's even more appealing to a Wizards team because the Wizards, as good as Boyan is, an older guy doesn't really have a place on a rebuild team like the Wizards anyway. So even though they would be getting his cap space in addition to all the cap space they have, they'd be achieving the same thing with Joe Harris, and perhaps they could extract a few more draft assets. If Detroit truly does believe, okay, well, maybe we can be significantly better if we keep Boyan and we add Kuzma and we have Cade and Ivy and et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, I, and then the other avenue is just don't do shit with Kuzma because seemingly <laughs> his contract will get more valuable as time goes along, assuming he can keep up this production, which, you know, I say that in the sense of maybe it is a bit of bad numbers on a, or, you know, good numbers on a bad team, but still he's, he definitely has talent. He definitely can provide something. It's just him and Poole are in a no-win situation um, being asked to lead that roster, unfortunately. So, yeah. And, I know that you, you know, you brought this up, obviously, but I, I'm going to have to throw it back your way. I got to ask you from a contractual standpoint, there's a lot of moving parts here, but is it something that you feel like the Cavs should possibly entertain hopping into? Oh, with Kuzma? No, I, yeah. I, no, because I don't see any way to do that without having to put pieces in play that are, you know, that are just not realistic. There's, there's not, yeah, such a, it, even, it would be Wade. It yeah. would be some combination. It would be some kind of a uh, combination of Rubio's salary. Obviously I feel like Niang would be in there. Yeah. And but I then like- if you're the wizards and I say, okay, you're going to get Rubio, Niang, Wade, all of them together. We have to put something with that. 
What do we have at this point? Like, there's, yeah. there's got to be somebody who can outbid us when we don't have first round picks to throw around. So, so if you're if you're going with the okay, we're bundling draft assets with with not great deals or not great players situation, then you got to have good draft assets. And if you're not going that route, then you got to go with well, we have a young talent who's maybe not as good as Kuzma now, but could be in the future. And does an Isaac Okoro? fit that role that's with the a filler that people yeah that, people will say that, that but people I, are including. I just i just think people have to be realistic that there will be people who can beat that deal easily from from other rosters regardless of how i feel about a coro if he's a centerpiece in a kuzma construction i don't think that's remotely realistic it's personally. not enough yeah no, no no so i would say no i, I the only reason i'm really bringing up kuzma is because we happen to be playing this back-to-back set with the wizards uh and i know this is gonna the OG trade is going to kick everybody in the full effect of trade iterations and rumors and all these things. And plus, I mean, what are we going to talk about with the Wizards right now? If not, you know, Stratful. it's tough. It's tough. And I say this, we're taping this before the game. I'll scrub this from the podcast if we lose to them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm a coward, if nothing else, Mac. I thought I explained this to you, how I don't engage people because I, you know, I don't like confrontation. Thank oh, you, I, I thrive on it. I, I love it. Oh, well, no, I, I enjoy reading it. Some, uh, oftentimes I find myself saying, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's fighting these arguments for all of us. I want to thank you, man. Thank you for taking all the time that you did uh, to come on the Fear the Fro podcast. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody, uh, you know, everybody who is, I'm sure they're all following you and subscribed and everything, but you should definitely check out uh, It's Cavalier Pod on both, you know, wherever you get your podcast, but also on YouTube if you haven't subscribed already. And of course, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Uh, Max thanks for the plug man and thanks for having me on I, I definitely appreciate it I love talking Cavs basketball I love hearing multiple points of view and perspectives on this team because you know you're you're, you're no stranger to this uh, talking to yourself all the time it's it's damn hard I know <laughs> it's I know. a damn hard thing to do it definitely definitely it's always nice to bounce things off of other people and kind of just see where they sit because otherwise I end up just screaming into a wall while my wife is upstairs just hearing me wondering what the hell is happening in the basement <laughs> Well, thank you, Mac. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can talk again on the heels of a big winning streak over these next several games. Yes, sir. Have a good one. All right, you too. There you go, Fear the Fro fans. That is another episode in the books. Mac Perry, thank you for joining me. I'll be back. We got some light schedule games here, so let's rip off some wins, shall we? Let's get a few in a row. Let's see another game where Kyle Kuzma takes 18 three-pointers. 30 shots to score 36 points or whatever it was in this past game. I want the least efficient chucking versions of Jordan Poole and Kyle Kuzma. And I want all of you to enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Please, if you haven't, leave a rating, leave a review. I appreciate it all. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio.